0: Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. That's the end of our first reading, and the second comes from the book of Romans. The letter of Rome, or letter to the Romans, from Paul the Apostle. A very great book. Rather a pity we're not doing chapter one. I'd like to hear Mr. McLean on chapter one. Romans chapter nine, verse six. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring, for this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated what then shall we say is god un? what shall then we say is god unjust not at all for he says to moses i will have mercy on whom i have mercy and i will have compassion on whom i have compassion it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort but on god's mercy for the scripture says to pharaoh i raised you up for this very purpose that i might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out the same lump of clay? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God choosing to show his wrath and make his power known bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? Uh, What if what if he did not what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles.
1: Thank you very much for having me along. Uh, this morning, I was here yesterday as well, doing some elders training for uh, elders for uh, in the churches around the presbytery. And it's uh, wonderful to be able to stay and worship with you this morning and share God's word with you. A couple of weeks ago, the Sydney Opera House hosted a festival of dangerous ideas. Here are some of the dangerous ideas um, abolish private schools, all Australians are racists, children are not innocent, let the banks fail, the devil is real. Those were some of the uh, edgy, exciting, challenging, uh, paradigm shifting ideas that were being discussed. And this morning, we're looking at one of the Bible's dangerous ideas. And there are lots of people who would say that what we're looking at this morning is genuinely dangerous, that it's destructive, deadening. And that's actually an idea that we should steer clear of, uh, the doctrine of election. This week while I was, uh, at, I was at college and uh, Ian Brunton, who lots of you of course will know, c- came up to see me and said, uh, uh, oh, I hear you're going up to Port Macquarie to talk about the doctrine of election. Uh, how did you end up doing that? <laughs> sort of rolled his eyes at me. Of course the answer is Scott asked me to. Uh, but I'm glad that he asked me to. Uh, it certainly is a challenging idea. Uh, my guess is you'll feel uncomfortable as we think about it. Uh, I certainly do. It might even make you angry. But as we face up to what the Bible teaches about the doctrine of election uh, and and struggle with it and hear the offence of election, and that's what we'll focus on in the first talk, we will also find that it's a wonderful truth, that there's a uh, I'm getting a signal down the back that it's not on or There we go. That's better now. Ah, look at that. There we go.
0: We will also find
1: that it's a wonderful truth and that there's a great joy in the doctrine of election. Uh, What is the doctrine of election? You might use the word predestination. Uh, It's the idea that God chooses people for salvation. That who is saved depends on God's decision and on his plan from eternity. Uh, That he has always known who his people will be because it depends on his choice, on his selection. And that is a tough idea. And not only is it tough, it is a dangerous idea. Let me show you a few ways in which it's a dangerous idea. First of all, it's morally dangerous. It may well make us arrogant. That's a danger of it. We might start to think we are the chosen ones. You know, we're fine. We've got God on our side. Everyone else is kind of wastage in God's great, God's cosmic plan, but we're the ones that really, really matter, and we're the only ones that God cares about. Uh, That was actually part of the basis of uh, apartheid in South Africa for some Christians there, that the whites were God's elect people and the blacks weren't. And it was a way that Israel sometimes seemed to think, uh, and the prophets tackled them about that, that Israel would think, we are God's chosen people, not those Gentile sinners. We matter more than anyone else. Everyone else should serve us. And so the doctrine of election can be morally dangerous if you think that you are one of the elect. It can also seem to be anti-human. It can seem like it's a doctrine that pictures us as if we're puppets. It leads to a fatalism where we just say, well, whatever happens, happens. There's nothing I can do about it. There's no point resisting. There's no point wishing things could be different. There's no point planning or working to change things. I'm not really even responsible for what I do because it's all predestined. And that seems to make us less than truly human. It seems to rob us of the dignity of actually having to live with the consequences of what we decide, of having that kind of terrifying freedom of making real choices, Uh, In medical ethics nowadays, one of the big emphases is on patient autonomy. Uh, We don't want to be in the situation where patients are lying in the hospital bed and they don't get any say in what happens to them. The medical staff decide or the family decide without any reference to the patient. In fact, the whole emphasis uh, in most medical ethics in that area is that the patient should be given as much information as possible and uh, consulted and helped to make their own decisions. But this seems like a doctrine that says that's not how God treats us. And so it seems anti-human. And it can also seem to be theologically dangerous. It seems to make God out to be a moral monster. Uh, it's, it, it seems to give us, or it might give us a picture of God, sort of like a, a kid watching, watching ants crawl across the fence and... Flicking some off when he wants to, and there seems to be no reason for why one ant gets flicked and another doesn't. It's arbitrary, random. Since God rules over everything and all the terrible events come from him, he doesn't seem to care who cops it. Now you might think of other dangers as well, but I mean that seems like a pretty big three pretty big dangers to begin with, doesn't it? That it's morally dangerous, it seems anti-human. And it's theologically dangerous. Uh, it is a doctrine that can seem very offensive uh, and even dangerous. Well, with those questions in mind, let's turn to Romans chapter 9, the passage that uh, was read for us and that's printed on your, out, on your uh, bulletin as well. And you'll see there's an outline of uh, the talk as we go along to help you follow it. Romans 9 has some strong things to say about election. Uh, Talking about Isaac, uh, talking about Jacob and Esau, Paul says, Jacob was chosen, not Esau, that God's purpose in election might stand. Or later on, that God has mercy on whom he will have mercy and he hardens those whom he wants to harden. But the tough question that Paul's answering actually is not the question of election. He's actually offering that as an answer to another question, a question that's a big one for him, but probably isn't immediately a big one for you and me, which is the question of what's happened to Israel. Uh, Paul, of course, you remember, the Apostle Paul is a Jew, and uh, he's grown up knowing that Israel are God's people chosen by God. They live in God's land, they have God's temple, they have God's law. And most of all, they have God's promise. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And that is a promise that God had given to their forefathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, repeated again and again. But Paul's message is that God saves Gentiles as well as Jews. And that's really the big point of the book of Romans, or one of the big points of the book of Romans. Uh, You might know the verse, All have sinned and falls short of the glory of God. What he's talking about, Jews and Gentiles, all have sinned and all are justified freely by his grace. Jews and Gentiles. And what's more, as Paul preaches and the apostles preach, lots of Gentiles are becoming Christians and following Jesus and lots of Jews are rejecting Jesus. And so the question for Paul is, so what's going on? Has God given up on Israel when he promised they would be his people? And are these chapters 9 to 11 in the book of Romans are, are dealing with that question. Uh, and Paul gives various explanations and comments and, and, and helps to explain what's going on. He says, not all Israel are Israel. It's always been the case that within the nation of Israel, there were some who were genuinely believers and followers of the Lord and others who weren't. Uh, He says that the Gentiles are being included, but Israel hasn't been cut off. The Gentiles are being grafted in. The stump is still there. And he says all of this, he hopes and expects, will lead many in Israel to finally come to follow their Messiah. But the other thing that he gives as an explanation for what's going on is what's going to occupy us this morning, that it is... Always the case, and it has always been the case that it is God's choice who are His people, and that was the case within Israel, just as much as it was, uh, just as much as it is now. So He takes Jacob and Esau as an example. Uh, you, I imagine you remember the family tree. Uh, Abraham is promised that his children will have a land and receive blessing and bless others, that they will be God's people. And uh, Abraham has a son. What's the name of Abraham's son? Isaac, that's right. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. But it turns out that only Jacob inherits the blessing and inherits the promise. Now why? Is it that Esau actually comes from the wrong family? No. no. I mean, they're twins. They're born at almost exactly the same time. From the same mother, by the same father. It's not the wrong family. Is it that Jacob's the eldest and so he's the one who should inherit? No. Esau's the eldest. If anyone's going to inherit it, it should be Esau. Is it that Jacob's really a nice guy and a good guy and Esau isn't? Well, No, Jacob's name means grasper or trickster. And that's what he is. He's a con man. He's a liar. It's not as if Jacob shines out as a paragon of virtue over Esau. So why does God, why why does Jacob inherit and Esau not? Well, Paul points out it's decided before they're born. God says the older will serve the younger. The blessing goes to Jacob and of course Jacob's name is changed to Israel and he is the father of the people, of the people of Israel. The nation come from him. And so Paul drives home the point, it's entirely based on God's choice. His point is God does not work from our actions but from his mercy. Jacob was a scoundrel a liar, a con man. Now God changed him, but he changed him because he chose him, because he loved him. Jacob had no claim on God. He didn't deserve to receive God's blessing. And the Bible says it's always that way. People come to God because God chooses them. It's never because they're especially good or especially deserving. No one deserves God's love. That's why God's love is so remarkable. That's why we use that word grace about God's love. His unmerited, undeserved favor to people who've turned their backs on him. It's always God's gracious choice. And in case you wonder whether this is just something that Romans 9 says, and it's kind of uh, a strange little uh, point in one passage, it's actually taught throughout the Bible and certainly through the New Testament. And I've got a list of references there on your outline of some of the other passages in the New Testament that teach the same thing. I'm not going to go through those, but you might like to uh, look them up this afternoon and, and, and think about them and see how they teach similar things. The doctrine of election shouldn't breed arrogance. If God has chosen you as one of his children, it's not because he was impressed with you. It's not because you were so lovable or I was so lovable that he couldn't help but love you. And God has chosen his people from every nation, from every race, from every background, from every language. It's no reason to be proud and to think that, well, we're better than anybody else. Whenever we think about election, we're thinking about God's grace, his generosity. It's not like the boy flicking ants off the fence, kind of capricious, random cruelty. It's God having mercy on people who don't deserve his mercy. Loving us despite who we are. And it should only produce gratitude. And humility? And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain, for me who him to death pursued? That's the response uh, that the doctrine of election should bring from us. And if God treats us like that, that's how we should treat others. There's no room for arrogance because of this doctrine. In the following verses, uh, verses 14 to 21, Paul stresses God's sovereign freedom. God is not constrained by us, by our preferences, by our plans, by our efforts. He is utterly and completely free to do as he wills, because he is the ruler. That, of course, is what sovereign means, the ruler. Uh, people often slip into thinking that there's some jobs that God kind of has to do, that, that somehow, you know, just because he's God, his job is to do something or something else. The Bible's very clear, he is free. Uh, Paul quotes God's words to Moses I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's not our choice. It's not about our efforts. It's his choice. And of course, the background to this is that the Bible teaches that God controls all the details of every event. He works out his plan through everything that's happening. Nothing surprises God. There's nothing he's unprepared for. It's all under his control and at his direction and things turn out the way he determines. And so I've summarized that on the outline. Again, there's some references there. You might want to check the references later. I'm not going to look up all those references. But just to read that paragraph, just to remind you of the vast scope in the Bible of God's sovereign rule. God show, the Bible shows God's sovereign freedom over all events. He controls the universe at large, the physical world, the animals, the nations, birth and life. Human success and failure, disaster and blessing, the events of so called chance, the way the dice falls, are under God's control and human decisions. And Paul reminds us of that by talking about Pharaoh. Uh, There's this great contest between Pharaoh and the God of Israel in the book of Exodus. Here is the emperor of the Egyptian Empire, he controls a great army. He has the power of life and death over his people, but God controls him. God even hardens his heart, the book of Exodus says. It's quite shocking, isn't it, that the Bible would say that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So he wouldn't recognise who it was that he was contesting with and repent but we can't avoid it. That, that is what the Bible says. God chooses some and he doesn't choose others. No one deserves to be elect. But why didn't God soften Pharaoh's heart? Why doesn't he choose all? How can a God of love not determine that he will save everyone? Uh, my answer for that is I don't know. It's a deep and confronting mystery to which there is no simple answer, certainly no simple explanation. In one way, Paul has a simple answer in this passage. His answer is, God is God. We are not. And we have to live this business to him. He has the sovereign freedom to do as he wishes. So in verse 19, Paul says, you might want to ask, how can God blame us or hold us responsible for what we do if this is the case? And he says, what makes you think that you've even got the right to ask that question, let alone that you'll have the answer for it? The creator can do as he wishes with his creatures. The potter can take the lump of clay and can make beautiful vessels that are... For some rich household, or he can just make plain old jugs. He can do it. Now that's not an answer which explains why God does things, but it reminds us we're God. uh, He's God, and we are not. Uh, And that's disturbing. Uh, It's probably particularly disturbing for us in our generation, in our society, because we live in a society where we're constantly told that we're in control, uh, that we can create our own destiny, that. The decisions we make uh, you know, are the ones that really matter, that you're the consumer and the consumer gets to say what they want. Uh, you, know, you can go to thousands of success seminars and read books and all those sort of things that tell, tell you about how you can take control of your destiny. And the Bible says, no. We are not little gods in our lives. It is the God of The universe who is God. Now, part of the mystery of this is that God's sovereign freedom doesn't stop us making real choices or us being responsible. We really do choose. In fact, the book of Exodus, which says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, also says Pharaoh hardened his heart. They're both true at the same time. We're not puppets. We're not robots. It doesn't destroy our dignity. But our choices never contest God. We can't somehow trump God's plan with what we do. It doesn't destroy our dignity, but it does tear away our pride and put us in our place. And Paul finishes this section by showing. What God is doing in his sovereign freedom. Two things he's doing. One is he's showing and he's putting into effect his righteous judgment. Sinners deserve judgment and God brings that about. That everyone who is outside of Christ, who rejects Christ, who turns their back on God, is shut out from God. But from among sinners who deserve hell... God mercifully chooses some. And so God shows his righteous judgment, but he also shows his mercy. And he does it his way, by his choice. So the doctrine of election really starts to turn our thinking inside out. As I said, we're constantly fed this fantasy that we're in control. Of course, the truth is, even at a human level, there's all sorts of things that we don't control about ourselves and our circumstances and our past. And our life isn't, even at a human level, just entirely open to us to shape whatever way we want. But all those factors that shape us, God rules over them. And He rules over our choices and our decisions. They're still our choices, but they never escape God's rule. We are dependent creatures. We're not autonomous. We're not little gods in our own lives. So even though in our thinking we often have ourselves in the centre and God on the edge, the doctrine of election election turns that inside out to put God in the centre and us on the edge. It certainly leaves us with difficult and mysterious questions. Why does God choose some and not others? We we don't know. How can God be sovereign and us still be responsible? We can't explain it. Why do we pray? God has things planned. Well, God Calls us to pray, and he actually uses our prayers in his plans. He he rules and he responds to us, but we don't understand how that works. But guess what? God is greater than us. Uh, God is beyond what we can understand, and we need to allow God to be God. Uh, you know, I think one of the strangest souvenirs that you can buy is a snow dome. You know those snow domes. Um, if you've ever been to you know, Uluru, Ayers Rock, and seen that you know, magnificent sight, just you know, overwhelming, and then you go into the souvenir shop and you buy a 20 millimetre size one, you know, in a little plastic dome with snow on it in it, and it's—I mean—as a souvenir, what sort of souvenir is that? It really mocks what you've just seen. It doesn't really show you what it's like. It shows you what it's not like. And often we have a snow dome God. We actually aren't ready to let God be God, to let him be big and mysterious and not answerable to us. But the doctrine of election blows that apart and puts us in our place. It's clear that God is God and you aren't. And the Bible reminds us of that mystery. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The revealed things to us and our children. Isaiah fifty-five: As my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways your ways, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We're at the very end of this section of Romans in Romans eleven. Paul finishes by saying the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths are beyond finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you now, remembering that we are your creatures. Sorry for our pride, our arrogance, our tendency demand that you should fit into our agenda. And actually, we're glad you don't. The truth is we're glad that you're God and we're not. And even though it's mysterious for us to understand how it all works and there's questions we can't answer, we are glad that you are God and we rejoice that you, in your mercy, choose people like us to be yours. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.